History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 352nd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, we're going to be in Cleveland on this episode. We're going to be going down a very special street. It's known as Millionaire's Row, or at least it was at one time. You know, a lot of these big cities have these old streets that were just lined with mansions at one time. It's like all the well-to-do people live there. And occasionally you'll find a street that has quite a few of those mansions still on it. It's always exciting when they've actually kept things restored. Yeah, unfortunately with this one, only four of them remain. And this topic was suggested by our listener, Lori Blackburn. So we're going to be visiting about those and a couple of them happen to be haunted as well. So looking forward to sharing those with everybody. Before we get into that, we have another pile of people to welcome into the Spooktacular crew. (laughs) Lots of people are coming to hang out with us and we're loving it. We want to welcome Jake, Angela, Mina. I guess she kind of got her name from the book Dracula, you think? Possibly. Barbara, Alfonso, Kyle without an E, Alicia with an E at the beginning, Lauren, Vito, Ellie with an IE, Mike, Sarah with an H, Kayla, Sabrina, Monique, Teresa with no H, Robert, Elizabeth, Monica, Jacqueline, Sydney, Debbie, Siobhan, Connie, and Buffy. I wonder if she's a vampire slayer. Sheesh, are you tired after reading all those names? I know. (laughs) Thanks for joining us in the crew, everyone. And now, this moment, Noddity. In 1873, P.T. Bartum offered $50,000 to anyone who could bring him the body of a sea serpent. There might just have been someone who could have done that at one time, and his name was Theodore Judson, who eventually was known as Crazy Judson. He became keeper at Stratford Point Lighthouse in 1880, and he stayed there for over 40 years. His family joined him at the lighthouse. In 1886, they told the Bridgeport Union that they had seen a sea serpent. The paper reported, A sea serpent with pea-green whiskers passed down Long Island Sound in a big hurry Wednesday morning. He was plowing through the water at a 25-knot clip when he passed the Stratford Lighthouse and left a wake of foam behind him a mile in length. He was easily 200 feet in length and his head was reared 20 feet above the brine. The big reptile was plainly seen from the lighthouse by keeper Theodore Judson, his wife, his son Henry, and his daughter Agnes and by H.W. Curtis of Stratford, as well as by a number of people at Captain John Bond's place up the river. Keeper Judson seriously declared to a reporter that he could not be mistaken. I saw it plainly, he said, and so did my wife and children, and Mr. Curtis. All of us are familiar with the appearance of a school of porpoises, and this sight was entirely different. It could be plainly seen without a glass. There were many witnesses, so this is not what earned Judson his nickname of crazy. 
It would be his report about seeing mermaids that would do that. Judson told a reporter in 1915, Three days ago, I saw a shoal of mermaids off Lighthouse Point. I've seen them again and again, but it's only once I laid hands on one. She scratched me well, but I got her brush away from her and I've got it yet. It's generally in the early morning or late afternoon that they gather around the rocks off the point. Sometimes I've counted as many as 12 or 15 of them, their yellow hair glistening and their scaly tails flashing. They're a grand sight. Judson would produce the brush when asked about it and his wife believed the story. This keeper was known for his tales, but he always maintained he had really seen and touched a mermaid. And that certainly is odd. And now, This Month in History. In the month of September, on the 3rd in 1833, the New York Sun newspaper first appeared launching the Penny Press. While printed newspapers are in decline and fairly obsolete in 2020, there was a time when nearly everyone got their news from the newspaper. The penny press was exactly what it sounds like. Newspapers sold for a penny. This innovation began with Benjamin Day when he founded the New York Sun. It was a desperate move rather than a smart business move because Day had lost his printing business during the cholera epidemic of 1832. He assumed that the working class would enjoy newspapers if they could afford them. Most newspapers sold for six cents. So Day targeted his newspaper to the working class and featured human interest stories and sensational stories, like the moon hoax, which claimed scientists had found life on the moon. He also introduced another innovation, the newsboy. The Sun would be the first paper to be hawked on street corners by newsboys. By 1836, the New York Sun was the largest seller in America, with a circulation of 30,000. Cleveland's Millionaire's Row was the place where the elite built their grand mansions in the early 1900s. Industry was booming and men like Marcus Hanna, Amasa Stone, Samuel Andrews, Charles F. Brush, and John D. Rockefeller picked the sixth largest city in America as their home. These were some of the most powerful men in the country, and their street would be known as the Showplace of America. All but four of these mansions would eventually be demolished. They are a testament to the past and hold on to their spirits. Join us as we explore the history and haunts of Cleveland's Millionaire's Row. Indigenous tribes were here when Cleveland would eventually set down roots as far back as 10,500 B.C., and these were migrant groups. Many of their tools featured flint that came from Indiana. Ohio is famous for its burial mounds, and many are found here. Many Native American tribes would come through the area like the Iroquois, Ottawa, and Shawnee, but not many stayed. From the mid-1600s to the mid-1700s, no tribes inhabited the region. 
I find that fascinating. It's kind of rare to see that, especially for a place that's going to become a big city. That's true. Cleveland was named for its founder, General Moses Cleveland, and he spelled his name C-L-E-A-V-E-L-A-N-D. So that's how it was originally spelled. He had been a director of the survey group sent out by the Connecticut Land Company. Cleveland would become the capital city of the Connecticut Western Reserve. The general designed the public square after those in New England. The village of Cleveland was incorporated on December 23, 1814. The spelling was changed in 1831 to Cleveland for a very interesting reason. Do you know what that was, Kelly? I do not. So in our This Month in History, we talked about the penny press and newsboys, that kind of thing. Sure. Well, this goes back to a newspaper. The newspaper could not fit the other spelling on its masthead, so they just changed it. Oh, too funny. So I guess that's what they decided to go with. Alrighty then. But that just kind of shows the power that a newspaper had at that time, too, that they could be like, you know what? We can't spell the city's name, so we're just going to change it, okay? This is true. Wouldn't happen today. No, oh, absolutely not. Because the city was located on the southern shore of Lake Erie at the mouth of the Cuyahoga River, trade became a major industry. Eventually, the city would become a center of industry and a gateway of immigration. During the early part of the 20th century, the city was one of the largest cities in America. After the World Wars, the city declined as people moved out of the city into the suburbs and industry slowed down. It was during the roaring success of the Industrial Age that Cleveland's Millionaire's Row would be born. Euclid Avenue is an old road that was originally laid out in 1815 and paved with Medina sandstone. The road followed the historic Lakeshore Trail and was given the name Euclid from a surveyor's settlement to the east that had that name. The street was declared to be a highway in 1832 by the state legislature. Rufus Dunham would be the first man to see the potential of Euclid Avenue. He would buy 140 acres of land and build a farm and tavern. This tavern opened in 1824 and would become a stagecoach stop. The Dunham Tavern still stands today at 6709 Euclid Avenue and is the oldest building in Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland landscape architect A. Donald Gray purchased the home in 1932 and restored it and reopened it as the Dunham Tavern Museum in 1941. Rufus Dunham had struggles in those early years because the city did little to service a street and drainage was horrible. As more wealthy people were drawn to the street, the city was forced to update so that flooding would stop and the property would be more desirable. Mark Twain wrote that Euclid Avenue was, quote, the most beautiful street in the world. If you fronted on Euclid Avenue, you had really arrived. After the Civil War, manufacturing took off in America and Cleveland grew quickly. The city became one of the five main oil refining centers in the U.S., joining cities in Pennsylvania and New York City. It would be here that Standard Oil would get its start as a partnership between William Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller, Samuel Adams, and Henry M. Flagler. We know him very well down here in Florida. This is true. The wealthy would build their homes between Erie, which is now East 9th Street, and Wilson Avenue, which is East 55th Street, with Lake Erie to their rear, and that included these oil magnets. So basically, the front of their house was on Euclid, and if you went to their backyard, you could see Lake Erie. Sounds beautiful. And they had these huge landscapes, just these manicured lawns that went on and on and on in front of the house. So they were backways. Most of them had some kind of fencing or gates around them. A lot of them had a little artistic appeal to them. It was kind of that showmanship of one upping your neighbor. So now, you know, we talk about keeping up with the Joneses. Back then, that's how they would do it is you'd be really fancy in the front, put some statuary out there. They had all these glorious oaks and elms that line the street. It just sounds like it was an amazing place. Love to have seen it. It's nothing like that now, but well, true. at one time it was just really amazing. 
John Rockefeller bought his home on the avenue in 1868 for $40,000. Wow. (laughs) And you know, what's interesting, something I wanted to comment about is when we see rich people who have mansions today, especially some of these Hollywood elite and things like that, they've got these homes that have 40 rooms, 50 rooms, and they just stretch out forever and take up all this property and everything. And then you look at these mansions back then, and they still had lots of rooms, but they really weren't all that big in comparison when you think about it. Everything's just grown in size, apparently. That is true. So I kind of like their ideas of mansions more than the, I guess we call them muck mansions now. I was going to say (laughs) mansions. $40,000. I mean, you know, nowadays, I mean, how much do we pay for our house? It's like, holy cow. And they had a mansion back then. Many of the mansions were built in the Romanesque style and Cleveland architect Chaz F. Schweinfurth designed at least 15 of the mansions. What is interesting about these homes is that these were large stone structures that should have stood for decades and maybe even a couple of centuries. These homes went up and were torn down over and over as new owners would come along. You'd have somebody build a mansion and say, you know, I really don't want to live here anymore. I want to move over into the suburbs. And a new person would come along and go, I want to put my own stamp on this place. And they just knock this huge mansion down and put another one up. What a waste. Yeah, I just was like, I can't believe. And of course, a lot of these had that Victorian appeal. So you look at them and not only is it heartbreaking to see that they're gone today, but even back then it was like, why would you tear down that structure? But I guess if all of them kind of looked the same, they didn't appreciate it as much. I suppose everybody wanted to be different. Many mansions would be demolished for good as the wealthy chose to move to the suburbs. By 1937, only seven of the 40 mansions remained on Millionaire's Row. That's not very many years down the road. That's so sad. Yeah. And unbelievably, the luscious lawns in front of these homes became used car lots, Uh. with the houses serving as offices for those lots. Most of the rest of the homes were destroyed so the inner belt freeway could be built. That's terrible. And at one time in Cleveland, now we're just talking specifically about Euclid Avenue, this section of it that was Millionaire's Row. Right. But there were... I think as many as 400 mansions in this area at one time. So we're just talking about a very specific area, but they used to have a ton of these mansions there. The grandeur of Euclid Avenue was over. Ironically, the pollution created by these rich men's factories pushed them out. There would be no more parades or social gatherings with patriotic bunting decorating the streetlights. It was hard to believe that this street once rivaled New York's Fifth Avenue for wealth. Only four of these grand structures have made it to our present day, and a couple of them have spirits still knocking around in them. Fun fact, one of the most interesting people to live on this street was con artist Cassie Chadwick. This was the woman who claimed to be the illegitimate daughter of Andrew Carnegie. She pulled off one of the greatest bank heists in history. She also claimed to be a clairvoyant and went by the name Madame Marie LaRose. She was also a real madam and opened a brothel in Cleveland. But don't tell her third husband that, whom she convinced she was a widow running a boarding house for women. Sure you did. (laughs) How in the world could he get convinced of that? (laughs) You know, sometimes a man will believe anything. Love is blind. That's right. It was with him that she lived on Millionaire's Row. She was not welcomed by her neighbors. Yeah, I don't know if they knew about her past or if she just was not a likable person, but wow. Perhaps some of the husbands of the area frequented. She sounds like a (laughs) fascinating person to do a little study on. Certainly. (laughs) So our first mansion to look at here is the Stagger Beckwith Mansion. This mansion's located at 3813 Euclid Avenue. This is the oldest mansion on Millionaire's Row that's still standing and was built in 1866 by Anson Stagger, who was the general superintendent of Western Union Telegraph whose claim to fame was creating the most effective secret code during the Civil War. 
His home was the first mansion built on Euclid Avenue and was designed by Joseph Ireland. And so I think it's very cool that this one still is standing since it's the original. The original floor plan had 15 rooms and covered 10,000 square feet. Stagger lived here with his family for two years and then he sold it in 1868 to Thomas Sterling Beckwith, who made his fortune in the furniture business. He founded the first furniture and carpet store in the city, Beckwith, Sterling and Company. When Beckwith died in 1876, Charles Brush bought the mansion and that was actually his neighbor. I guess he wanted to have both properties. Brush sold the house in 1913 to the University Club. The club occupied the space for 90 years and added 40,000 square feet to the property. The University Club was a social club for men with college degrees. In 2018, the mansion became the Cleveland Children's Museum, and that is what it is today. To date, we've heard no reports of hauntings here, so if you guys have heard differently, let us know. I know that they have started offering tours because there's a lot of adults who would come up and they'd be like, you don't have a kid, you can't come in here. They're like, but we want to see the inside of the house. Oh my gosh. So they have not allowed. (laughs) Yeah. So they have started offering tours that are kind of historic so you could see some parts of it. Because the pictures I saw of the interior, I mean, it's a children's museum. So it does not look like... Anything like the original. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they've done a lot of uh, changes in the inside. So the inside, I don't think, looks anything like it used to. But maybe there's a fireplace or two that still looks original. Sure. Next, we have H.W. White Mansion. The H.W. White Mansion is located at 8937 Euclid Avenue and is known today as the Cleveland Clinic White Mansion. H.W. White had worked for the Baker Motor Vehicle Company, which had been an electric car producer in Cleveland during the turn of the century. The house was designed in the Romanesque Revival style. There is wonderful detail in the stone carving and stained glass windows. We have heard no haunting tales about this location either. Again, if you've been there to see a doctor and had some kind of experience, please let us know. (laughs) And what's fascinating to me is this has become part of the Cleveland Clinic, And I mean, I had to dig just to get those few lines that we just shared there. I had to dig and dig and dig to pull that out. I could find nothing on this mansion. I'm like, okay, it's one of four original mansions from this place. It's so sad because there's so little history left of this area after all the excitement and beautiful homes that it had seen. Now, I know there's been a couple books that have been written about Millionaire's Row, so I'm sure they might have more details in those. But yeah, I could not believe online that I could not find any of the history, especially you would think, I mean, Cleveland Clinic, wouldn't it be kind of fun on your about page to say, look at this grand place that we're in. This is what it used to be. Mather Mansion is our next stop. This is the largest among the mansions constructed on the street, and it's located at 2605 Euclid Avenue. This was built for Samuel Mather in 1910 by architect Charles Schweinfurth in the Tudor style. Mather was chairman of Pickens, Mather and Company, which was one of the four largest shippers of iron ore in the country. He was one of the richest men in Cleveland and held powerful positions in transportation, iron, and banking. His mansion was luxurious with the finest furnishings from around the world and a ballroom with a 16-foot ceiling. The interior featured handcrafted woodwork, stone, and brick. The house had cost $1.2 million upon completion. Now, this sounds more along the lines of what you're expecting for a mansion. Right. Samuel Mather died in 1931, and the Cleveland Institute of Music moved in until 1940. The Cleveland Automobile Club purchased the house then, staying until 1967 when Cleveland State University acquired the property. The university renovated it and the mansion was placed on the National Register of Historic Places on February 20, 1973. The university planned to turn the house into a boutique hotel, but they gave up that plan in 2014. Instead, they set it up for the Center for International Services and Programs, a program that taught English as a second language. The Mather Mansion is reputedly haunted. 
One story was shared by a member of the grounds crew who was sent to investigate why motion sensors had been set off at 2 a.m. He walked throughout the mansion and suddenly heard the elevator fire up. It began to move, and then he heard the sound of people laughing and the clinking of glasses. Music traveled on the air, and yet he was the only one in the building. He was so scared that he said he would never enter the house again, and he never did. A housekeeper had her own experience that was even more terrifying. She was cleaning a room when she felt something that she could not see forcibly grab her, and she was flung from the room. As she picked herself up, she heard the vacuum turn itself on, and then it joined her out in the hallway. Did they throw the vacuum too? <laughs> I don't know. When I read the story, I couldn't tell if it was something that got flung out of the room or right. if it drove itself out of the room. <laughs> it's a little disjointed. I want to know more. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know the details specifically. Other people in the house have experienced the faucets turning on and off by themselves. They've heard disembodied footsteps and strange knocks. It's the creepy moaning that gets most people, though. I can say if I was in the middle of cleaning a house and the vacuum turned itself on and started moving towards me, I would probably be done for at least the day. Oh, no, I'd say have at it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I guess that's true. As long as I don't have to pay you, you go right ahead. (laughs) Just make sure you don't suck up the tassels on the rugs or run over the cord. Yeah, don't screw anything up because then I'm going to be in trouble. Oh, my word. I have had a couple of haunting experiences when I've been in houses. Uh, One of them was a fairly new house, so I don't know why there was anything going on. I've probably told the story before, but I was cleaning in this house that had one of those wraparound stairways, you know, where you go up, there's a landing, and then it turns and goes up the other way. Right. So I had my back to that, and I was cleaning in the family room, and I was cleaning the TV off, and I heard what had sounded like the garage door had opened, and that somebody had come in. I heard this male voice say, hi, or hello there, something like that. So I thought it was the man of the house had come home maybe from work during the middle of the day. And I just said, hi. And I didn't turn around or anything. I just said hi. And I was continuing to clean. And (laughs) I kept listening for like the shower to turn on upstairs or somebody to be upstairs. And I was like, well, that's weird. He didn't usually we carry on a little bit of a conversation when he comes home. And I don't hear anything going on up there. So I kind of creeped to the edge of the stairs so that I could see up that other angle and into the master bedroom to see if I could see anybody up there. And I was like, I don't see anything or hear anything. So I went and looked out in the garage and his car was not there. There was nobody in the house. Wow. So (laughs) I don't know if I just, you know, sometimes when you're listening to the radio or your podcast or whatever, you hear audio artifacts. I don't know if it was that. (laughs) But in that same house, I was cleaning upstairs on another occasion. And I heard, you know, where you have the vertical blinds that hang down. You know what they sound like when they kind of bang against each other. Sure. So I was cleaning in the master bathroom and one of the other bedrooms I heard what sounded like the vinyl lines swinging back and forth and hitting each other. And I was like, oh, they must have left a window open and it's windy outside. Let me go get that closed because I don't want it to mess up the blinds or anything. So I go into all the bedrooms and all the windows were closed. That's weird. But I they didn't know, have a cat or anything? No, no pets in the house. Huh. I know that I heard it because, I mean, I stopped what I was doing. I'm like, oh, the vertical blinds are blown around. So I don't know what was going on, but it was one. it was a new build. It had only been there for a short period of time. So I don't know. Yeah, that doesn't always matter, though, especially if they've brought in some old antique or who knows what. Yeah. And this was back when I first started cleaning almost 20 years ago. So I was not about to ask them at some point. (laughs) Do you guys ever have any weird things happen here? Hear strange noises? People talking to you from out of the air? Didn't want them to think I was crazy. Poltergeist activity. (laughs) Now most of my clients know I'm into ghosts. So they'd be like, oh, uh uh-huh. Is that why you're hearing things? Well, it does give it away when they see your car and it says, I seek dead people. (laughs) 
and they love it. Every one of them have made a comment about that bumper sticker. They just absolutely (laughs) love it. They're like, oh, so you seek dead people, huh? All right, let's reel it in. An article in November of 2016 in the CSU Alumni Association details an investigation they hosted. In what has become one of the Alumni Association's most popular Passport Cleveland tours, a group of brave alumni recently joined the Ohio Ghost Hunters for an investigation into whether Mather is indeed haunted. Based out of central Ohio, the hunters are a group of scientific and psychic medium investigators traveling the state, gathering evidence of the paranormal and offering solutions on how to address otherworldly phenomena. (laughs) I can't help myself. We found spirits present in business buildings, open fields, trains, Navy ships, and historic villages, said Peggy, director of Ohio Ghost Hunters. And as you might guess, they might have found some at Mather Mansion during the tour. Peggy led the group into what is believed to be Samuel Mather's former bedroom, a cavernous room with elaborate woodwork and candle-like wall sconces. They set up an electromagnetic field detector and what's known as a spirit box that can supposedly interpret voices from the other side. They turned off the lights and initiated an investigation. It started with basic questions. Is there anybody here from the Mather family? Peggy asked. We're not here to do anything but ask you questions, she assured. Whatever, whomever they hope to encounter. Are there any spirits that haunt Mather Mansion? Me, a voice supposedly intoned through the spirit box. That sounds like a child, Peggy said. What is your name? Though they never found out the child's identity, two members of the ghost hunters were fairly certain they could distinguish two separate voices communicating. How about we come back sometime, Peggy offered as the evening drew to a close, following that with a farewell. Through the white noise of the spirit box, what sounded like good night replied. Did you hear that? Peggy chuckled. Yeah, so apparently they picked up a little something. And I think it's interesting that it was the Alumni Association, so I wouldn't think they'd be making this kind of stuff up. Something happened there with them. Very cool. And it wasn't real clear on the university's website, but it does look like they do host... These kinds of investigations come around Halloween time, those kinds of tours and stuff. So watch next year, because I'm sure they're not doing it this year for something like (laughs) that. Probably not. And finally, we have the Drury Mansion. This is located at 8615 Euclid Avenue. Francis Drury began the road to success by inventing a lawnmower. And boy, are we appreciative of that. He was born in 1850 in Michigan and got started early in the hardware business. It was at that time that Drury invented the first internal gear lawnmower. He moved to Cleveland with his invention and partnered with Taylor & Boggess Foundry Company to manufacture that lawnmower. Later, he started the Cleveland Foundry Company and focused on cooking stoves. So he created the first kerosene stove that would eventually lead to the Coleman stoves many of us have used for camping. Love it. So this is a great guy. He got us the lawnmower and the cooking stove. I'm appreciative of both. (laughs) All stuff we need. This was really innovative because everybody was using wood stoves at that time. This would get Drury working with John D. Rockefeller, who produced kerosene. It was a great partnering. And you can imagine that John D. Rockefeller was like, hallelujah, this guy created something that specifically uses what I make. I mean, you had kerosene lamps all over the place, of course. But wow, to have a stove too? (laughs) Cha-ching! Drury had arrived and he wanted to build a mansion where all the other successful men had on Euclid Avenue. Construction began in 1910 and finished in 1912. It was built in the Tudor Revival style and had 34 rooms. 
The spacious home covered 25,000 square feet. Drury, his wife Julia, and their son lived at this location for 12 years. And why they needed 25,000 square feet, I do not know. (laughs) That is so much space. They followed their neighbors to the suburbs and bought the 155-acre Cedar Hill Farm. Julia and Francis only lived there for a year before Francis died, and then she moved and died in 1943, which was 11 years later. The Drury's would always be known for their philanthropy. They donated much to the music community in Cleveland. The Drury Mansion was bought by the Drury Club in 1939, and much of the Drury family's furnishings remained as part of the Drury Club. People would come here to have dinner and do some dancing. This later became a nursing home for many years, around four decades, although this seems to have been a halfway house of some sort in the 1970s because there were stories of guards and parolees in the house. And unwed mothers were said to find sanctuary here before the halfway house. So I'm not really sure about that whole history of the in-between. The first thing I read was that this had been a nursing home for four decades. And then I read all these other things and I'm like, well, when was it all of those things? Right. Quite a variety. So I'm not exactly sure about all of the dates, but supposedly it delved into all of those things. And now the Cleveland Clinic here again has bought another one of these historic mansions. They did this in 1989 and they continue to maintain it today. So they like the old stuff, I guess. An article written in the Cleveland Plain Dealer, written by Imogene Adams in 1939, claimed that the Drury Mansion had rumors of its secret doors and subterranean tunnel have long mantled it in a shroud of mystery. And I just want to point out that her last name is spelled like the Adams family with two D's. <laughs> the best way. Yeah. The author went on to write that the tunnel had been sealed. The passage had led to some sunken gardens across the way. One of the main rooms had a six-foot fireplace with hand-carved Bedford stone and dark oak paneling. More rooms must have been added at some point because there are stories that claim there are 52 rooms inside. I thought it was interesting. I don't know if it's because of the bad weather. I would think if it's bad weather, you wouldn't bother going over to some sunken gardens anyway, but that they had a tunnel going to the gardens rather than just walking above the street. Unless the traffic was just so much because it was getting pretty busy there. I thought that was kind of interesting that it had these secret doors and subterranean tunnel. And she was talking about this back in 1939. She was writing that in a newspaper. And maybe there was some prohibition stuff going on there. Makes you wonder. I don't know. Then it makes you also wonder, did the Drury Club, they bought it at that same time. And that's when she was writing this article. What all were they involved in? Sure. (laughs) So maybe they had some (laughs) sneaky stuff going on, too. But I just thought it was fun that back in 1939, she was writing about something like that. This home is notoriously haunted. There were some years when it stood vacant. There were two police officers who were guarding the house in 1972, and one evening they had a terrifying experience that they would not discuss. They were found in the morning sitting on the floor with their backs against each other, and they each had their shotguns at the ready. Dang. So I don't know what they saw or what happened, but they would not talk about it. Others who've worked in the house have reported hearing disembodied footsteps and doors and windows that open and close by themselves. Some have claimed feeling as though they are being watched. In 1978, the first report of seeing an apparition would be made. The sighting took place on the main staircase, and a worker claimed that he saw a mysterious woman standing there with her hair up in a knot on top of her head and wearing a brown dress. There were other sightings of her in the kitchen and in some of the bedrooms. Many people wondered if this was Julia Drury. Others believe that this is another woman possibly a woman who boarded here. People say that they have heard disembodied screams floating through the hallways and stairs creak as though under the weight of a human. I don't know what the screams are coming from, if that's going back to the nursing home days or something. Possibly. On Dan Ruminski's Cleveland Storyteller website, he writes, 
A couple of years ago, I was giving a Cleveland Storyteller presentation at the Drury Mansion on Euclid Avenue, one of the four millionaires row mansions that is still standing. With 52 rooms and walls of remarkable wood detail, the mansion's sheer size and splendor took us all back into time. I was speaking with my back to the grand fireplace, entertaining a crowd that had gathered to hear about Francis Drury and his wife, Julia. When I spoke Julia Drury's name, the lights over the fireplace flickered quickly, intentionally. The simple mention of her name triggered an obvious sign of her presence. I halted. The audience gasped. Our eyes darted around the room. My wife described Julia's appearance with stunning accuracy. She had never seen a picture of Mrs. Drury before. The following Monday, I returned to the Drury Mansion to return some photographs to the mansion curator. Again, I mentioned Julia Drury's name while standing in the living room with the man. And again, the lights flickered fast, on and off, on and off. The ghost of Julia Drury was letting us know we were in her company. Now I want to go into that mansion and stand in front of the fireplace and say her name. Heck yeah. See what happens. So I found that interesting, especially to have it happen more than once. Then you know it wasn't just a fluke. Right. And I thought it was very interesting that his wife described Julia's appearance. Was she the only person in the room who could see her? And does she normally see dead people? Questions I have. Questions we need to know. A distant tragedy has been connected to the mansion. About a half dozen blocks down the street, a fire broke out at another building occupied by the Cleveland Clinic. This took place on May 15, 1929. 123 people perished in the blaze that was started by vapors connected to x-rays. One of the victim's spirits is said to have traveled down to the Drury Mansion. I don't know why it walked a half dozen blocks, but maybe it's because it was the nicest house it came to first. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> so I'm camping out here. And it seems appropriate since this is another place owned by the Cleveland Clinic. This apparition has been described as being beautiful and brunette. She wears a bracelet identifying her as a patient of the Cleveland Clinic. When she makes appearances, temperatures rise to unbearably hot levels, which I always, anytime that happens, I always find that fascinating rather than the cold. Getting cold, cold, right. People who see the ghost claim that she seems to be trying to share a message. She then disappears in a flash of smoke. The fact that so many of the mansions that once stood along Euclid Avenue no longer exist is sad. How did a street that was once a showcase lose so many of its treasures? Two of the four are thought to be haunted. Are the Mather Mansion and Drury Mansion haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, just another place for us to check out in Cleveland. We are going to have to get ourselves up to Ohio someday. Heck yeah. Lots of great stuff to see there. And one of the things, you know, I love odd stuff. Those burial mounds. I love to check those things out, too. So oh, the fact definitely. That Ohio has so many of them. Lots of things to see. So we'd have to plan a, a long, long time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we're in agreement on that one. <laughs> definitely want to ask you guys to check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. Again, join us over at the Spooktacular crew. We're going to start putting up our schedule of things that are coming up. We will be doing a cemetery bingo in October. We have our anniversary show coming up with our flash fiction contest winners. We usually have extra shows in October as well. We have the virtual trick or treat going on and we will be having our virtual Halloween party on Halloween evening. We're going to do it at 9 p.m. Eastern time. I'll get all the information up over at the Spooktacular crew for everybody so you can join us. We'll have a costume contest, some drawings, and just hang out with each other. And I already know that Kelly is coming up with some really cool decorations for (laughs) our end of the Zoom communication. So if you guys have things you want to share with everybody, too, this is a great way to show them your decorations inside your house or whatever costume you're working on. Because we're not going to have the big parties we can go to and do all that with. So we're going to do it as best as we can. Halloween will not be canceled around here. Heck no. 
We are so looking forward to it. Please join us and participate, everybody. I wanted to point out that this is in Cuyahoga County, this Millionaire's Row. They have 109 historical markers there. Wow, that is a heck of a lot. Yeah, so they got a lot of great stuff to check out there. Also want to thank Asha and Janice for your messages over on the History Ghost Bump page. Much appreciated. Want to thank you guys for checking out this episode. Been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to thank Karen Udell for raising your contribution. We're going to be moving you into a grand garden tomb. And in three months, you'll be getting your logo mug. And we want to welcome into the cemetery, Maria Adam and Candy Westerfield. Both of you will be buried in chest tombs. Thank you so much for supporting HGB, you guys. We couldn't do this show without you. You can find History Goes Bump on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Google Play, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Cleveland's Millionaire's Row. What? That sounded weird. <laughs> row, row, Tourism. row, row your boat oh, down the stream. Lordy. Were you rowing while you were doing tourism? Stop it. <laughs> As your laugh went last, last week. <laughs> From the mid-1600s to the mid-1700s, no tribes in... No tribes... <laughs> Cleveland was named for its sounder, for its sounder. (laughs) It's going to be a long morning. (laughs) By the state legislature. By the state legislature. What? (laughs) Did that help you with your L? Sometimes. Okay. He would buy 140 acres of land and build a form and built a farm and tavern. One of the most interesting people to live on this street was con artist Chassie. Chassis? It's Chassie. I know. Okay. Chassie? Are you thinking Chassie of Chassie Chadwick. <laughs> What's con artist? Cassie Chadwick. Who made his fortune in the furniture company. How about business? <laughs> I was like, okay. You can I'm just going to make up words. my own things. Actually, it has company in the next line. So that's my uh-huh. excuse. Next, we have H. White Mansion. The H. White Mansion. Why, why, why am I not saying the W? I don't you didn't know. even catch it. I didn't catch it. <laughs> the H.W. White Mansion is located at 8937 Euclid Avenue and is today known as the Cleveland Clinic White Mansion. Period. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and is, <laughs> and, is and no- that's a period, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs>